0: this morning we're looking at Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 24. It's printed in your bulletins. You can follow in your own Bibles. I will read that aloud, and then we will read together the passage we're memorizing together over these next probably three more weeks uh, from Romans chapter 3. And if you're wondering what I mean by that, we've got these, uh, it's in your bulletin, but also we've got these bookmarks, and we're encouraging the congregation to read select portions of Romans. As we work through the book, and so hopefully by the end of the book, we will have memorized roughly six to eight uh, short passages from Romans that help us to walk through the message of the epistle to the Romans. So if you give your attention to the reading of God's Word, let me ask you, if you're able to please stand as I read aloud from the Word of God, Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 24. This is the Word of the Lord. But if you call yourself a Jew, and you rely on the law and boast in God, and you know His will and the proof of what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others do not teach yourself." Turn your attention to Romans chapter 3, verse 10b through 18, and we will together read this aloud. So let's read aloud. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Would you please be seated and would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would be at work through your word as you've promised, that your spirit would be here working in our hearts to apply your word that we might be sanctified in Christ Jesus. Would you make us more like our Lord and Savior? Would you help us to flee from sin? Would by your spirit, would you mortify that within us, putting the old man to death, raising in Christ Jesus the new man? that we would have life and victory and salvation evermore with you. We thank you and we glorify your holy name this morning. It's in your name we ask all of this. Amen. This morning, as we begin looking at uh, Romans chapter 2, we're actually in the middle section of the second chapter of the epistle to the Romans. And you'll probably notice that there's a number of concepts that are being introduced in the second chapter some of them that you probably wish you had more time to dive into. And I want to tell you this morning, as you think about the second chapter, probably more than the first chapter, these new concepts are being introduced, and they will be uh, uh, dived into with more detail extensively in the coming chapters. Chapter 3 and chapter 4 and chapter 5, and then again in chapter 7. So if you're hearing uh, uh, new ideas that you wish we would take more time talking about, don't worry, we're coming back to these things. We will answer such questions as uh, uh, like, what advantage is there to being a Jew? Right? Or what is the function of the law in the life of the believer? These things are coming up in the coming chapters. But we have to be careful as we work through Romans that we don't get ahead of ourselves. There's a methodical argument that the apostle is building And if we take a concept and we jump ahead and try to explain it too quickly, we actually lose the suspense of the argument that Paul is developing, okay? So this morning, let's simply talk about verses 17 through 24, save many of those ideas for the coming chapters in Romans in which Paul will definitely engage some of the questions that you're probably asking. This morning, as we look at verses 17 through 24, let me tell you, there's only one point for the sermon this morning. One point. Very exciting, isn't it? I was thinking, I mentioned this before we were outdoors, but when you leave an outdoor service and somebody says to you, what was the sermon about? Too often I hear people say, I don't remember. My hands were too cold to write. There was nothing to write on. I don't remember what the sermon was about, okay? I'm going to try and simplify this for you. One point. If somebody asks you this afternoon, what was the sermon about? You have a very easy answer to give, Okay. One point, it comes from verse 24. (laughs) It's getting windy. Verse 24 says this, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. The one point we're going to talk about this morning is why because of us or why because of Paul's audience is the name of God blasphemed among the Gentiles. As you heard that verse read aloud, you probably should have paused for a moment. It's a verse that should give you pause. It is a, a, a confrontational verse, right? It's not filled with niceties. It's not an easy verse. It's a very confrontational verse. And we ought to ask that question. Why, because of them or because of us, did the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God? The Greek word translated as blaspheme is actually a word that means to be disgusted with, to be repulsed with. Why, because of us, the Gentiles, why are they disgusted with, why are they repulsed with the name of God? That's the question we're going to answer this morning. And to do that, I want to begin with a little story, okay? Now, if you've, if you've been around for a long time and, and been listening to my preaching, you've probably heard this story before. As a matter of fact, last night I was thinking, when's the last time I told this story? I went back and looked. If you're here in the summer of 2016, okay? I know it's been seven years. If you're here in the summer of 2016, I told the story. It might sound familiar. That's okay. It's a really good story. Whenever I get into really um, tough situations in life, I think, well, this is going to make a good story for a sermon someday. So I uh, might as well enjoy it while you go through it, right? Uh, okay, so here's how it goes. Um, freshman year of college, we had finished our first year of college. And during the summer of freshman year, I thought, you know, I want to plan a, a backpacking trip for all my friends. And so that's what I did I invited some of my friends from high school, I invited uh, invited some of the friends that I had met at college, and we were going to go on this backpacking trip over the summer, between freshman year and sophomore year, and I was going to plan the whole thing, and I I really embraced the idea, I was very excited about this, and so I planned this trip, it was going to be a few days, we were going to cover a a number of miles, I don't remember how far it was exactly, but it, it, it seems in my memory it was a very long backpacking trip. And uh, at least one of those nights, we were going to camp at this pinnacle, this beautiful rock overlooking this magnificent valley, and the, the trip was going to be amazing. And so if you know me, you know one of my uh, personality quirks is I'm a, I, I love efficiency. I'm, I'm, I, I think that we ought to be more efficient in everything we do. And so I'm planning this trip and thinking, how do we be efficient? How do we make this trip so that we're carrying as little luggage as possible. And we're moving along the trail, and, and, and anything we don't need, we're not going to bring. And so I, I made a packing list, and I said, don't bring your ponchos. If it rains, we'll get wet. Not a big deal. And, um, and I encouraged them. And that's not even the best part. I encouraged everyone who was coming, I encouraged them not to bring much water. I said, bring a, just a 20-ounce bottle of water, okay, because we're going to bring a filter, and we're going to gonna drink the water right out of the springs along the trail, okay? And so I, I brought the filter, the water pump to pump the water, and, uh, and I, I brought the map and the compass and very little equipment, and we, we began this hike, okay? And we're going along this hike and following the map and doing a very good job of following the map, and we get to the location of the first spring along the trail. I think it was maybe like five or six miles into the trip, and everyone by this point had drank their, their water, okay? It was all gone. And we, we get to the spring, and we arrive to the place where the spring should have been, and right there is a, a pile of dirt, okay? There's no spring at all. And I I guess one of the things we had failed to take into account, I had failed to take into account, was if you go backpacking the first week of August, it's likely that the water is dried up, okay, or at least some of the sources of water. So five miles in, now we're at the point we have no water and we have to make a decision. Do we turn around? Do we go back to our cars, scrap the whole backpacking trip, or do we venture on and we decided to venture on? Okay, so we, uh, we hoped that the next three springs along the way that there would be water. And as we went one after another, there was no water at any of the springs, okay? So we end up that night setting up our tents on this rock, supposed to be overlooking this uh, beautiful valley, and everyone is as sick as a dog, okay? It was terrible. I remember at least one person throwing up throughout the evening uh, and all dehydrated. And when we got to this rock where we're camping. We had somebody pull it out of their bag. They had like four ounces of water left, and we sat it in the middle of the camp. We said, we're going to preserve this water, and tomorrow morning, we're all going to take a drink of water, and that's going to get us out, back out to our car so we can escape. And, and, uh, and the next morning, we woke up, and somebody had drank the water overnight. <laughs> uh. <laughs> it was terrible. It was like a real Lord of the Flies situation. I mean, it was, uh, uh, everybody was in survival mode, and, um, and, and it ended up being just a terrible backpacking trip, absolutely terrible, okay? I I tell you the story this morning, and I I will conclude the the last part of the story a little bit later, but I I tell you the story not because I love to share my own epic failures, but I think the analogy is one that helps to understand what's happening in Romans 2, what will be happening throughout the course of this epistle to the Romans as it concerns two things that Paul speaks about this morning. So let me Direct your attention to verses 17 and 18. In verses 17 and 18, Paul mentions two important things in the life of Israel that are going to have a drastic impact on our understanding of how we're to live according to the righteousness of God. Look at this. In verse 17, uh, he says, but if you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law, okay, so the law is the first one. If you underline, if you circle, if you like to take notes, the law, circle the law. The theme of the law will be a reoccurring theme in the epistle to the Romans. That's the first thing. We'll talk about it in a second. But he goes on and he says, and you know his will and approve what is excellent. The second thing you could circle or highlight is his will, okay? The law and the will of God are are crucial elements of understanding what God means when he says, because of you, the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God. So let's talk about them just briefly. The law. What is the law? The law is the thing that God gives to Israel. You remember, he makes for himself a people. He calls them out of bondage in, in Egypt. He brings them into the wilderness. He brings uh, Moses up onto Mount Sinai, and he says to Moses, I'm now going to give you my word and my law. And he gives to Moses the law, these, these commandments that the people of Israel are to obey if they fear the Lord, Okay. And it became, in the life of Israel, this very important thing that dictated how they were to carry out their everyday lives. They, they summarized it into 614 laws of God that could be taken out of Exodus and out of Leviticus to summarize the righteousness of God that they thought they were to live by, okay? Now, just, just hold that idea for a second. We'll come back to it. That's the law. The second part of that, verse 18, the will of God. I love how Paul writes it in the Greek because if you read the Greek... It doesn't say his will, or it doesn't say the will of God. It actually says that you, what's the verb? That you know the will, okay? You know the will. And that's often, uh, uh, that's Pauline language. It's the way that Paul often speaks about the things of God He doesn't give God's name, he just calls it the, okay? The glory, the honor, the will. It's the will, but it's assumed it's the will of God. Who who else has a will? It is the will of God. And so you know the will of God, and you have to know that there's an overwhelming amount of evidence as Paul writes his epistles that when he refers to the will, he's referring to a very specific thing. He's referring to the word of God, okay? So not the general will of God or not some sort of concept of what is God's will, When Paul says you know the will, he's referring to Scripture, okay? So here in verses 17 and 18, the Apostle Paul begins this argument to the Jews and the Jewish Christian and the religious person. He begins by saying, listen, you have the law and you know the Scripture. You have these two important pillars in your lives, and these are the things now that Paul will build his argument upon the law. And the scripture, the revealed will of God. Now listen, as Paul is going to move on to criticize them for the way that they've handled the law and the written word of God, there's a number of things that he doesn't mean. First of all, he's not criticizing them for the way that they are thinking about the law and the word of God. As a matter of fact, the way they've elevated it and they've they've seen it to be the righteousness of God, there's not a problem so much in the way they think about it. So much so that in verse 18, you see there it says, you approve of what is excellent. The Greek word translated as excellent is actually the word that means superior. You approve the things that are superior, okay? If we read rightly Paul's words in verse 17, 18, and following, we understand that the apostle Paul is actually saying to his audience, you do have a high view of the law and and scripture, and that's not the problem. That's a very good thing, okay? You ought to have that. The other thing that, that Paul says, you know, this is also not the problem, it's not the problem the way that the Jews and the religious person and the Jewish Christians, it's not the problem that the way that they have uh, tried to uh, look at others in the world through the eyes of the law or the way they've tried to bring the law and the word of God to other people who are out there. That happens in verses 19 through 20. Look at those verses. If you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You see, in in those verses, it may sound as if Paul's being uh, condescending or as if he's being sarcastic. Like, look at you. You you think that you should go tell other people about the law and about the Word, but he's not being sarcastic at all. He's not being condescending. This is actually what the people of God were supposed to do, They they were called to be lights in the darkness. They were called to be guides to the blind. They were called to point others to the word and to the law. This this was part of their calling as the people of God. So this is not Paul's critique either. We ought to ask the question then, what does he mean in verse 24 when he says, because of you, the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God, because of you, the Gentiles are disgusted. They're repulsed with the name of God. Uh, to answer that question, I, I want to finish my story. Our, our backpacking trip, we, we woke up the next morning. Everybody, again, it was sick. Kind of wondering, like, are we going to have to go to the doctors after this? Or somebody going to have to check into the ER? I mean, it really was a terrible situation. I, it's amazing how in 24 hours uh, such terrible things can happen. But we, uh, we ended up hiking out. And the end of our hike ended at, at, into a, in a valley at the base of the Schuylkill River in Pennsylvania. And I remember, if you know the Schuylkill River, it's, it's a, not a particularly clean river. Uh, but I remember as we caught sight of the Schuylkill River, I remember a few people kind of breaking into a, like a jog towards the river, wading into the river and just taking gulps of water out of the Schuylkill River. And, and uh, yeah, we all, we <laughs> forgot the filter. There's there no need for it. We just needed to get water into our bodies. So we... We ended up in the Schuylkill River just um, finally getting the water that we needed, okay? Now listen, as we think about what's happening in Romans chapter 2, the the problem with the handling of the law and the word of God is very simple. The law and the word were given by God to us and to his people to serve as a map and a compass, okay? To serve as a, a map and a compass. They were designed... For the people of God to lead them to the living water, but the map and the compass were never designed to bring life, okay, to save someone from the thing that they needed to be saved from. And that is the function of the law and the word, and it's the misunderstanding that Paul will continue to address as he speaks about this very issue in Romans chapter two. Think about this. We, we know this to be true. We have seen it all over the scriptures. I'll give you one example. If you pick up Psalm 119 and you read about the law and you read about the word, you will never find in Psalm 119, you will never find a verse that says the law gives you life. The law will revive you from your sin, okay? The law is the thing that covers your sin. You will never read that in Psalm 119. What you will read is this, Lead me in the path of your commandments. I turn my feet to your testimonies. It's verse 35. I will not turn away from your law. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. You you know that passage. You've probably memorized it before. The law and the word of God were designed to lead the people to the righteousness of God, but they were not themselves the thing that would bring life to the people. And yet they had totally misunderstood this. John Bunyan describes this very thing in Pilgrim's Progress. If you've ever read Pilgrim's, Pilgrim's Progress, you'll remember there's this one point where Christian, as he's going along the journey, Christian is shown a parlor. And in the parlor, if you remember, there's, the parlor is just covered with all this dust. It's really dirty. It's, it's full of dirt. And, and the, the person who's speaking to Christian says, well, the dust in the parlor is original indwelling sin, and it's building up. And Christian, as he's watching the parlor, he sees a, a man come along with a broom and he begins, to sweep. he begins to sweep the parlor. And Christian says that the room was filled with dust, so much so that Christian couldn't breathe. He began choking on the dust. And, and then a, a woman comes along and she pours out water and she washes, washes the parlor and the dirt and the dust is washed away. And, and then the voice, the, the narrator says to Christian, listen, here's what you need to know. The, the water is the gospel that cleanses Original sin that washes away the sin and brings righteousness. But importantly for our discussion this morning, Bunyan, as he's talking about the law, this is what he says. The the, the broom is the law, okay? And we think it's going to clean out the dust, the, 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 the sin that is within our hearts, but this is what Bunyan says. This is to show you that the law, instead of cleansing the heart by its working from sin, does revive... Put strength into and increase it in the soul. That's sin. Okay? Even as it does discover and forbid it, for the law does not give power to subdue sin. Did you hear that? That is the picture. The dust is being swept and Christian is choking upon it. Like, What's going on here? The broom should be cleaning up the room, but it's not. And the confusion is that we think the broom will cleanse our hearts from sin. But the picture that he says and the words that he uses, he says, listen, uh, by its working, the law, the law does revive, put strength into and increase it in the soul, even as it does discover and forbid it for the law does not give the power to subdue sin." That's an idea that Paul is going to come back to in chapter 3 and come back to in chapter 5. And we will definitely talk about that, the power of the law. What is the power of the law? Well, the law doesn't have the power to subdue sin in the heart. It has the power to identify it. It has the power to show it to us, to lead us from it. But it does not have the power to subdue sin in the heart. You see, the things that we read of in this passage that God has given to his people, the law and the word did not have the power to give life. Power to lead to life, yes, but the power to give life was always only in the vicarious work of Christ Jesus. In the forgiveness of sins through the Lamb of God, the map and the compass, the law and the word, therefore became, when not handled rightly, they became instruments of death, didn't they? They became the tools that led unto death. If you want the, an analogy from the, the trail picture, listen, it's very simple. The picture is this: the, the trail of life of life is, is treacherous, right? And there are cliffs and there are there are big holes in it along the journey, and there are dangers, and there are, there are all these things that along the path to righteousness that, that man cannot journey along that path without some intervention of God. And the picture of the person who takes the law and takes the word of God and says, okay, this is is what I need. I'll just live by this and I'm good to go. The picture of that person is a person who stands by the edge of the trail and says, I I have no need for the water. I have the mail. I have the compass, uh, the map and the compass. I'm good. I don't need those things. I find my rest in the law and the word of God. Listen, if you look back at verse 17, this is the exact words that Paul uses. He says, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, the two verbs, there are really interesting verbs, boast and rely. Boast means to hold your head up high with confidence. And if you hold your head up high with confidence in God, you say, we have his word, we're his people. And the word rely is, a—I love the word rely. It's a word that means to, to find rest in. Sometimes it's even used to mean to, to sleep You're so comfortable, you have so much rest that you just kind of nod off to sleep. He says there, if you call yourself a Jew and you find rest in, you find your sleep in, you can be so comfortable and confident on the law. And if you hold your head up high in God, those are pictures of people who have found their ultimate hope, resolution, purpose, meaning, salvation in the law and in the word. This is what they thought would bring them life. And so Paul rebukes them in this passage, but let me ask you the question again, the only point we have this morning. Why then, because of us, did the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God? And listen, when I say us, I mean us loosely, Uh, the letter, is Paul speaking in chapter two? He's speaking to Jews and Jewish Christians and religious people, but I think we can put ourselves in their shoes. We can probably find a lot of meaning and purpose out of the words that Paul has for them, because in many ways we struggle with the very same things. So I ask the question for us why, because of us, why have we caused the Gentiles, the people in the world, the irreligious person, how have we caused them to blaspheme the name of God? Well, what happens? when the map becomes not just a guide, but it becomes the source of life. When we think that eternal life can be gained through the law. Well, you see, when people believe that to be true, they develop for themselves sort of rote and artificial ways of following the law, right? We, we know in our heart of hearts we can't follow the law. so We have to develop some way of conformity. If this is the way that we have life and salvation, then there, there must be a way. And so they, be, they begin to build these fake facades of obedience under the law. That ultimately leads to the Gentiles and the nations blaspheming the, the Lord God. Listen to how John Calvin describes it. I think he beautifully articulates it. He said, he said most people, especially when they want to hide their contempt of God's law, In some way, they train their eyes and their feet and their hands and their other limbs to keep the law's commands. All the while, their heart knows nothing of obedience. But they think themselves absolved if they can conceal from men the things that are visible to God. They hear the words, you shall not kill. You shall not commit a debauchery. You shall not steal. As a result, they do not unsheathe the sword to kill they do not associate with the promiscuous, and they do not lay hands on other people's property. Well, all that is well and good, but their heart is full of murder, and it burns with fleshly lust. And they cast only sideways glances at their neighbor's property, but they are consumed by greed in their hearts. In, re- in that respect, the essence of the law escapes them. You see... See what the, the religious person, the, the Jew, the, the, the Jewish Christian, the, the person who has a propensity to, to view the law and the word of God as the things by which if we obey them, we have life. And so therefore, uh, life is all a, a, a practice or a measure of how well we can follow the righteousness of God. You see how that leads to this? The things that Calvin just described, an outward conformity, but all the while knowing that, that the things that, that men see are very different from the things that God sees and yet thinking that there is life in that do you see how easy it is for us in our own lives to cause others to blaspheme the name of god let me let me If you haven't connected the dots yet, let me just show you what Paul means when he speaks about, because of you, the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God. You see, when we encounter our unsaved family and our unsaved friends and the people in this world who want nothing to do with religion, let alone the living God, those who have rejected God and rejected Christ, those who have been burned maybe by the church, when we encounter them, do you know what they know probably better than even the people who are in the church? You know what they know? They know when they look at the law of God, the 614 laws that the, the Jews had so well tried to follow. what They know when they look at that, they know that no man can perfectly do that. They know it, don't they? Right? They see it and they know their own heart and they say there is no way, there's absolutely no way that anyone can do that. They, they realize that and when they come into contact with Christians whose stick is like be good as we are good. Okay? or you ought not to be living this way you ought to live like us and you ought to do the things that we are doing and and they walk into churches where they hear sermons from the pulpit right with like five rhyming words about the things you ought to be doing this week okay when, when all that is presented to them is a method of living and a law that they ought to obey and the things that they ought not do and the things that they ought to do and how they're not doing and how they're different from other people, but you be like us and you live like us and you can do the things like us because we're doing the things that God has commanded. When they encounter that and they know that no man can do that, you know what they do? They blaspheme the name of God. They're disgusted with the living God. They, they are repulsed by the living God. Why? Because a, a, a God is like his people, right? And they see the people of God and they say, well, look at these fools. Well, they, they think they can do this, but any human being with two eyes knows they can't do this. They can't perfectly live this. And even if they think they can do it outwardly, they can't do it in their hearts. There's no way the law calls for conformity within and without, right? And, and the world recognizes that. That's what the apostle means, When he says, because of you, the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God. It had become the mode of operation for the Jews to live according to the law. And we're living according to the law, and we're doing what God has commanded, and you're not doing what God has commanded. And you knew to do what God has commanded, right? That was all that the world had seen of the living God. And therefore they blasphemed his name. See the 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 people we come into contact with, they know that. And you, you know what? I don't know if you realize it, you know what that means? it means they have an understanding of the need for grace. I mean, they may not know where grace comes from. They may at first want nothing to do with Jesus, but they understand the need for grace. They realize that no man can live if if salvation is achieved by living the law of God. That's intuitive to them. So when the people around us, when they hear that, whether we We know it or not, whether we mean it or not, whether we see it or not. Most of the time, these people simply blaspheme God because of us. They disdain Him because of us. We are seen as the master masqueraders, chief hypocrites. Say as I say, not as I do or as I think. Because the people, again, are like their God. So they perceive our God to be a foolish God. A God who is deceived. You know what the Apostle Paul does in this passage then? You probably saw it. He asks a series of pungent questions, right? Really cutting questions that if if the people were listening when this letter was read aloud, if they haven't been offended and turned off by Paul already, they would have been when these verses were read. He asks a series of questions that help to demonstrate the contrast between the profession of mouth and the practice of the actions, okay? This is what the Apostle Paul says, beginning in verse 21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? And listen, just as we read this list, listen, you, I think that Paul intentionally uses these these." Uh, very terrible sins, right? stealing, blaspheming, adultery, so that even as people heard this read aloud, they say, well, that's not me. I don't do those things. But if we know where Paul's going, we know that he's cutting all the way to the heart, and he's gonna say, yeah, but do you do this in your heart? Yeah, if you do it in your heart, you're as guilty as the one who, who does it outwardly, okay? And so he says, while you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. You see that? He exposes the heart that the one who has ears to hear might say, oh yeah, we we see how we have caused others to be disgusted with the name of God. For we thought ourselves righteous, And righteously able to follow the law when in fact we are unable. See, followers of Jesus Christ must have hearts that are humbled by grace. If you really understand the pathway and you really understand the law and you really understand it, then you know that you will not be saved by the law, that you cannot be saved by the law. You are unable to live the law's righteous demands. And when you realize that there's only one thing you do, you cry out for mercy and you say, Lord, have mercy, for I am a sinner. And then the law becomes what it was designed to be. The law becomes a map and the word of God becomes a compass. And you say to the living God, lead me to the streams of living water, for I'm lost without you. And if that's you, if that's what the Spirit is doing in your life, then you will not tell others how better they should be because they should live their lives like you and they should be like you. You will tell them how lost you are apart from God and from the map and the compass that He's given you, how desperately you need help, how grateful you are that God did not leave you, but He came near to you and He forgave you in His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what you'll tell other people about. And others will not blaspheme God because of you. They will glorify God because of you. Some of them will. And they too will seek streams of living water. And the map and the compass will not be unbearable burdens to them like they might think. They will be godsends of mercy and grace. The very instruments that lead them to the righteousness they so desperately need. This is what the apostle means when he says, because of you, the Gentiles blaspheme the living God. My encouragement to you this morning is very simple. Let let us recognize that that we, we, we are not able to live the law's righteous demands, but we of all need grace. And we only stand here as righteous before the Father because He first loved us and had grace on us. That should be our message to the world, not our message, but that should be the way that we live for a watching world who's always asking the question, what does this people say about this God, that he's a God of grace and mercy? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for your law. And we ask that in our own minds and in our own hearts that your word and your law would not be this great anchor that weighs us down or this great weight that pushes upon our shoulders or this great burden of living where we think if we live according to it, we, we, we are righteous before you, but when we fail, we are unrighteous and that, that your acceptance of us depends upon our ability to live the law. May we be disowned of that way of thinking. And may we recognize that if we have had faith in Jesus Christ, that we are already righteous before you. That there is nothing that we could do, nothing that we could say if we are joined together with Christ that would separate us from from your love, the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And give us a heart to understand that grace, that generous grace which is ours. And then, Lord God, would you lead us to deal rightly with the law and rightly with the word. May we see them as tools that lead us along the path to you. That we would see that you are glorified in an obedience to the law. Not because we have to, but because we desire to. That your word then is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. That your word is living and active. That your spirit now dwells within us. And may we, oh Lord God, as we go from this place, may we not act as if we have a righteousness of our own. May we live as people who have righteousness of another. May we be humbled by grace. And in that, Lord God, by our actions and through our words, may you draw sinners to repentance. And may you call children home that they would be obedient through the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for your son. And we pray this morning that you, O oh Lord God, would be glorified with all that we say and do. In your name we ask all of this. Amen.